0: That was a great year for me. That was a, I was living my best life that year.
1: When I was 12 years old. (laughs) Hi, and welcome to the episode of Centenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Centenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. But here on the show, we also love talking about directors and not all directors can be placed into one specific genre. So if you're just now joining us this month, welcome to part three of our series on Australian film director, Peter Weir. Before we dive into this this section of Weir's career, Thomas, can you tell the people who Peter Weir is and what we've learned about him so far this month?
0: Peter Weir is an Australian film director. Uh, We discussed in part one, if you want to hop back and catch up uh, about his role as one of the forefront directors in the Australian new wave uh, film movement in the seventies when the Australian government started funding filmmakers to make films in Australia and often films about Australia and kind of Australian identity, which is what we discussed gave, we are a lot of the themes in his early films of being a visitor, being kind of a stranger in a strange land, because a lot of these films were about the, themes of being a, a European uh, colonist in Australia and, and settling in this land that is your home, but also is not you know, you know, is still kind of unfamiliar and is someone else's home. So then last week we talked about his breakout into American film. A lot of the filmmakers from the Australian New Wave did come over to America, but I don't think anyone really broke out in the way that, that Weir did. He had uh, an Australian film called uh, Year of Living Dangerously that we discussed last week that really just kind of blew him up in America. Also established Mel Gibson, who had already done the Mad Max movies as as a real bona fide movie star in America. And so then Weir came over and made his next two American films, uh, Witness and Mosquito Coast, both with Harrison Ford. Who
1: at that point is top five
0: like biggest stars in America. Oh, absolutely.
1: He's in top five coming off of Raiders... I mean, he's probably in the top two or three with Raiders and uh, Raiders, Temple of Doom and Star Wars. And it's going to be very apparent in this episode, too. But Ford was kind of the beginning of Weir's, uh, I think, track record with actors who were trying to make a pivot in their career in some way Mm. i mean you could you can argue that with gibson as well coming off of mad max because he's like i want to prove i'm not just an action star but he's a little bit younger than he's not as big but ford being so big like, hey i'm gonna make two movies back to back with this australian film director to kind of get me out of the get me more into a mature acting uh category Yeah, like it's it's a it's a similar thing that you have with like child actors or whatever uh when they get older or teen actors can they be adult actors and some ways that happens with franchise movies especially if you become famous with a franchise Mm -hmm. is can i do movies outside of this that aren't franchise films and ford tries to does uh, proves this in the mid-80s when he does a, a a, a larger slate of more adult themed films and witness being kind of one of the first ones and the mosquito coast being i th- like I said before last episode one of the most unique performances from ford and some might say it's one of his best performances i might even say that because it's just so it's like we talked about last week a very abnormal character for the persona of harrison ford
0: yeah you know something? I don't think I brought it up last week, but also a fantastic wardrobe. You know, yeah, I don't agree with the man, yeah. but I love his Hawaiian shirts.
1: <laughs> what else? Oh yeah, I was, I was like, what else is I watching recently? I had a lot of Hawaiian shirts, and it was Summer School with Mark Harmon.
0: Oh yeah, Mark yeah. Harmon rocks yeah. some solid shirts. He in that rocks them
1: very much. So, um, so he does those. He does Witness the Mosquito Coast with Harrison Ford. Peter Weir does, and. Mosquito Coast Witness is a big hit, as we talked about last week. Like eight Oscar nominations. It 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 introduces him to the American American audiences, and he was really able to take those Australian kind of themes or ideals that he was using, and really transition them well to an American audience. Mm-hmm. And Mosquito Coast, however, was a very different film, and did not have the same acclaim as. Uh, Witness did, and was and was a box office failure. It made fourteen million dollars on a twenty-five million dollar budget. I think Harrison Ford said in like ninety-two that it was the only film that he made that didn't make money, and so we're kind of has a little bit of a three-year break, is what it is after this. um And his next movie he wants to make after Mosquito Coast is a movie called Green Card, uh, a romantic comedy starring Gerard Depardieu. But Gerard Depardieu is very busy in France at this moment in time because uh, he has become a huge star in France and Weir wants to make a movie with him, but he's going to be busy for a year. And Weir basically like, well, what am I going to do? And that's when Jeffrey Katzenberg at Disney uh, slash Touchstone Pictures like, hey, I have this script for this movie that we're making that might be a good fit for you. And that is Dead Poets Society.
0: Um... I'm a little curious about the timeline because I I did some research and Uh uh, at one point Dustin Hoffman was attached to direct and star as Keating. Yes. And then it got up off the ground with uh, the director who did revenge of the nerds. I can't recall his name.
1: Jeff, Jeff, Jeff canoe, I believe. Yeah.
0: And that got up off the ground with Liam Neeson as Keating and like got to the point where the sets were built already in Atlanta and then Williams at some point in there, Williams gets swapped in. I, I can't tell. I've seen yeah. some accounts that Williams was attached before Weir. I've seen some accounts that Williams didn't come until after Weir.
1: A lot of different uh perspectives it sounds well, like I've,
0: I've also seen, interestingly enough, I've seen at one point that Gibson was almost attached before Weir was attached. Yeah. And also that River Phoenix was almost attached yeah. before so it, it could have been a real weir reunion. He had really just done yeah. uh, *Mosquito Coast* with River Phoenix as well.
1: So Gibson was allegedly like offered the role when Canoe was there, but uh, Gibson wanted too much money. Hmm. And I did wonder if Weir was already attached. Does Gibson take that role for a lesser paycheck? And I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I've never really i've always kind of assumed they had a good working relationship but yeah i've never really heard either way so i was like i wonder what happens
1: i also heard a few other names i I heard tossed around for keating roll uh and this is jumping ahead a little bit for for dead poets but a lot of people on this episode hopefully you've you've heard dead poets or, or have seen it before um but it was so you said gibson you said dustin hoffman tom hanks apparently is a rumored name i heard
0: okay I mean that's that's right in the middle of his kind of transition. Coming after to, big,
1: to it's
2: to like drama. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I, I'm sure he, he, that's one of those things, you know, like a couple of years ago, you look back at a movie that was made like five years ago and it's like, Oh yeah, Tom Hardy was attached at one point. I feel like that's kind of the same thing. It's like you just had to you had to bring up Hanks at some point.
1: Yeah. And 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 Hanks will actually be come back up on the next episode that we do, by the way. Uh with one of Weir's films. Hmm. Um, but so Tom Hanks was rumored. Allegedly,
0: Bill Murray was rumored. I i saw I did see that. That could have been really I mean it's it's <laughs> I feel like it's uh it's just kind of a repeat of um what's the camp one? Meatballs?
1: Meat meatballs meatballs, yeah. but a boarding school. <laughs> but but I would say out of all the names I've heard, Bill Murray makes the most sense. Yeah if you're trying to go in line with the Robin Williams type
0: mm-hmm. movie. Well I'd be I I'd be really interested to see what uh canoe was that uh
1: i i i assume that's how you pronounce it I what, what direction
0: Jeff. that was going to go because he was someone who had a little bit more comedy experience but he had also done a couple of dramas if i remember correctly so yeah, he
1: was he was he was an editor for ordinary people so oh. which is very dramatic by robert Redford. revenge of the
0: nerds is not dramatic
1: revenge of the nerds not um no the, the last name i heard would be a totally different film mickey rourke hmm was a name allegedly turned it down because he because we're wouldn't have a script rewrite that uh, what rourke wanted interesting so but before but but after all that thomas what is dead poet society about for the people out there
0: uh it's a coming of age film about a group of young boys at a boarding school in 1959 uh who it's a very strict boarding school it's you know cream of the crop and these boys are the best and they've all got Huge futures, they're all going to be doctors and lawyers, and uh, there n- a new English professor or teacher is introduced to them, uh, Mr. Keating, who is younger he's been through that school before he's like thirty years younger than any other teacher there, and he's the English professor, and he sets out to teach these boys about poetry and art and beauty, and ultimately to follow your own heart, you know the dangers of conformity uh which is being forced on on all of these boys and and it's seen through this ensemble of these boys but mostly the story is told between two roommates uh Todd Anderson played by uh played Ethan Hawk
1: by yeah Ethan, by Ethan Hawk. Hawk. You uh, can say it's I, his I name. just got I just got caught up in my head. I was like is it Anderson
0: or Henderson? But it's Anderson right uh
1: it's Anderson.
0: Yeah. Todd and Neil um Neil played by uh Robert Sean Leonard. Fantastic crazy cast like it's insanely yeah. talented young cast uh also my personal favorite in name and in actor knocks over street uh played by <laughs> the fantastic josh charles yeah. i'm a huge josh charles fan sports night was my jam <laughs> i need more josh charles in the world
1: weirdly i had a I had a, a, a english lit teacher in high school play sports night for us that was her go-to if things like I need to put something on, we don't have anything planned. I hear sports night, which I just find to be a fun pick of probably one of the most outlet, not outlandish in it, but like one of the most abnormal picks from a teacher. Yeah. Is sports like night. It's, it's probably there the most like
0: it's probably the most kid friendly Sorkin's ever been at least. Yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah. Keating, of course, played by Robin Williams. I don't know if I said that, but <laughs> yeah.
1: he's yeah. in there. Yeah. Dead Poets. So this was when did you come across this film? So I think this is k- kind of important for this movie.
0: My sister, was I think was shown Dead Poets when she was in like high school, and I remember her like coming home and we had a VHS of it that my like parents had had. But like we had never, my sister and I had like never messed with it until she was shown it, and I remember her coming home and being like, "You have to watch this movie." And I was probably in like fifth grade, sixth grade, and I was just blown away.
1: Yeah, I I came across in high school, weirdly also in. Another classroom setting. It was it was a drama class. They showed Dead poet Society.
0: I thought you were gonna say English class. Drama class is a weird class to show this movie <laughs> because it's like, hey, if you don't get the part in this play,
1: yeah, yeah, it was it was what could yeah, happen. It, yeah, it was it was play production. It was my second semester of drama, so it wasn't intro drama. It was the set, the more advanced yeah. uh, version of it. But yeah, I remember because we made jokes of how again, you know, this is to date us people made jokes about like, the bagpipes playing someone's like is that a corn song they're playing in the in the opening there because out corn those don't know new metal
0: k-o-r-n
1: K- uh k-o-r-n uh it's i think i can't what, what song it like starts off with like bagpipes
0: i literally freak on a leash is the only corn song i, I think it's like shoots and
1: Even... ladders or something
0: you got that on me I, I just know the one that. They
1: go... <laughs> that's uh pretty
0: sure that's freak on a leash
1: yeah there's like three corn songs i know it's freak on the leash they all sound
0: the same i turned I, I literally i turned on the radio the other day and there was a corn song on and it wasn't <laughs> freak on a leash but i was like this is this freak on a leash anyway
1: but that was the kind of the joke because like, we had a guy one of my who was like a punk rock kid uh who was like sounds like corn <laughs> and then me being when that was played a year later in like my english class i stole that joke and everyone nice. thought it was hysterical. Nice. Um, anyway. Um, but yeah, I saw this, uh, in, in ninth, in freshman year, high school. And what I always found interesting when watching this in a classroom setting was that like half the class was really into it. And the other half wasn't. And there was always like a popular group of kids who were the most, like, I don't want to watch this movie or whatever, but there was always like one or two, one or two in that group that somehow became transfixed by the film and would like get upset with the the their friends for interrupting the movie or whatever. You
0: got to think about it in the terms of the movie. You know, not everyone in that class was in the dead poet society. That's true. You're, you're going to have that kid that says his poem is, uh, the cat sat on the mat. You know, you're, you're always going to have that kid in there. He does stand up at the end. He though, does. I, says, I actually yeah. really like, I I actually really like that. Like very small arc for him.
1: Yeah. Funny enough, uh, side story with him. Found out he was a student at the actual school they filmed at. And
0: they were just like, "You want to be in this movie? Come
1: on." He made he made more money than his teacher that year. They said because he got paid for that movie. Hell yeah, <laughs> for his like one line of the cats sound of mat. But yeah, it, it does. Yeah, you're right. It's that sometimes some people connect to it, some people don't. Especially at that age, like poetry. Why do I care about this? But. Yeah, so I came I came around it in and, and freshman year, it hit me in a certain way that as it hit certain people at that age. And looking at it now, it is interesting looking at it in the context of Ron Williams' career for mm-hmm. one, but also like the structure of of a coming of age film too. Cuz it's kind of a it's a weirdly cuz like for example, I'll ask you this, who's the main character of this movie?
0: uh I think it's a it's a two hander uh-huh it's Neil and Todd, but it's interesting. I sent you uh some deleted scenes today, yeah, and it's about fifteen extra minutes of scenes that they shot, and it really could have like there's there's some choices they could have made to really like make Keating the main yeah. character that they 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 chose not to they could have they could have put more knocks in there. I would argue that they could use. A little less, less Knox, Knox. as much as i yeah, I, I love josh yeah. charles his storyline has aged the worst it's not aged well and i think in making the decision to cut some of his stuff they really weakened the storyline that was already not great in the first place and you know That's what i'm here point. for laura flynn boyle we got a ride in, got, got in, cut <laughs>
1: completely from the movie
0: we got a ride for her she got called the day of the premiere and said hey don't come we cut you out of the movie
1: that's Oof. that sucks. That's that's terrible. I mean, it's better than like Andrew, Adrian Brody showing up for the Thin Red Line with his parents and finding out he's not in the oh, movie yeah. as they're watching the film.
0: <laughs> but yeah, um, but yeah. Ultimately, I think it's 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 about Todd and Neil. It's about Neil's journey and the effect his journey has on Todd's journey.
1: Yeah, I I mean it's so it's an interesting thing because I could you could easily argue either of them. It is kind of both Todd. Has I think the larger arc
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a way. Um, what I think, what I think is interesting too is is the way they kind of switch the characters in a certain way. And I didn't think of this when I was watching this in high school, and I, I thought about this time. And by that I mean, and this we're getting into spoiler territory here for those that haven't seen Dead Poets. So I just want you to be aware of this because uh, there's one big part I got to talk about, and that is Neil's suicide. Mm-hmm. And what I think is kind of different for the time is that when you're watching it and i remember kind of watching this in high school thinking todd is the troubled kid
0: Mm -hmm.
1: something's gonna happen to todd and neil is the charismatic like leader of the group so it is somewhat surprising when the switch is that neil's the one that commits suicide and todd's the one that kind of has this growth by the end of the film Mm mm-hmm and that's not usually the way like you would see in most high school
0: films yeah. but
1: it is a more realistic portrayal of you don't really know what's behind closed doors with kids growing up
0: yeah i think it's a it's an excellent observation and and definitely a, a good way to introduce it to people who are watching this at a vulnerable age that it that it can be the people who you know hide it the best that are in the most pain cuz neil is kind of the ringleader he's the most kind of passionate one he's the most uh he's he's the one who kind of binds the whole group together because he's the the friendliest he holds these friendships with these people he's the one who really values keating and so yeah i think one of the big lessons of the film is you know it's it can be those gregarious people who who do seem and, and he al- he always shrugs off anytime he has an issue with his father he he, he shrugs it off like it's no big deal especially you know there's that the great scene where where todd gets his uh the desk set for chris for his birthday from his parents and they got him the same desk set the year before and neil like immediately knows how to make him feel better and you think that's just like oh that's just neil being a good guy but when you watch it again and again you realize it's because neil's been through this pain and he's figured out how to like force it down and (laughs) and kind of play it off
2: today's my birthday Is today your birthday? Happy birthday. Thanks. What'd you get? My parents gave me this. Isn't this the same desk? Yeah. Yeah, They gave me the same thing as last year.
3: Oh. Oh. Maybe they thought you needed another
0: one. (laughs) Maybe they weren't thinking about anything at all.
2: (laughs) Uh, The funny thing is about this is, uh, I didn't even like it the first time. Todd, I think you're underestimating
3: the value of this desk set. I mean, who would want a
2: football or a baseball? Or a car. Mm. Or a car, if they could have a desk set as wonderful as this one. I mean, if
3: if I were ever going to buy a desk set twice, I would probably
2: (laughs) buy this one both times. In fact, it's the shape. Is, it's rather
3: aerodynamic, isn't it? You can feel it. This desk set wants to fly. Todd? Huh? The world's first unmanned flying desk set. Yeah.
0: Oh my <laughs> Well, I wouldn't worry. you'll get another one next year
1: <laughs> going off their friendship, their friendship is uh like i say it is the key to the movie, and that also to bring it we're into this this kind of discussion. he's dealt with this theme before with friendship with mm-hmm. Gallipoli, yeah, and it's kind of similar i mean it's 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 certain it's in a way of how he takes the contrast of the two characters is present in this movie like it was present in the Gallipoli friendship of there's some sort of divide they have either in personality or views okay here's a question too because Gibson's the big standout of that friendship the actor wise those two who's the big standout in this friendship is it Robert Sean Leonard or is it Ethan Hawke
0: I think it's Robert Sean Leonard here Ethan well, I don't think they give Ethan Hawke I mean he's playing he's playing quiet. Like he's playing shy and he plays yeah, yeah. it really well. Uh, and he yeah. has some amazing scenes, but I think yeah. that's, that's kind of the structure of the film and what the film is supposed to do is make Robert Sean Leonard, this just crazy charismatic person, because without that, Todd wouldn't be drawn to him in the way that he is. Um, yeah. And I, and I think Ethan Hawke absolutely kills it in the last third of the movie. The scene yeah. gets me at the scene in the snow gets me every single time. By the it's, way, one take one it's incredible that's amazing yeah oh man you know who kills it in that charlie i love charlie that that guy i understand like didn't really act anymore after that i think he's like a a creative exec now but he's so good and when he like gets down with him and 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 and, uh todd's like it was his father and and charlie's like no no oh man tears
1: yeah yeah uh gail hansen I so I went to a screening of this a few years ago. It was it was it was the last time or it was the first time I saw it after Rob Rob Williams passing away, and it was the last time I saw it for this episode too. And I think a lot of the guys were all there, hmm. like Leonard and Hawk were not, but I think Gail hansen was. I think Meeks was there. I think Pitts was there as well. Meeks got by the way Meeks. He got jacked he was a yeah. he, he got he was built yeah. when I saw him at that at that uh q a um but yeah Gail Hansen as charlie even in high school i'm like what's this guy doing now because like he's the one that like there's always there's certain movies in the 80s with like coming of it, like uh of teen films there's that one like supporting character that somehow is like got What's that person doing now? And then you go and look like, oh, they did nothing really after this movie. It's just this yeah. weird kind of era of that.
0: And they could have made that character. And this is how I think kind of rich the, the I think it's a little bit the script. And I think it's also what Weir brings to the film. And I can I yeah. can point to an exact example of this, that that they could have made Charlie the like cool kid that like doesn't yeah. care. But but yeah. he does. And and I don't know if this is scripted at all or this is something that Weir does, but I absolutely love. Uh, the scene at Neil's funeral is shot. It's just a shot d- down the line of the group, and they're all singing a hymn during the funeral. Mm-hmm. And it's not even Charlie's out of focus. He's down towards the end. It's focused on like Meeks and Pitts, but Charlie yeah. is not singing. He's the only one who's not singing, and he is just like staring straight in ahead. In the distance, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it's it's very It's great. It's it's, and I think that's that's probably more weird than it, it could have been in the script. I don't know, but that's that's one of those moments that makes it like, oh, okay, this he's, he's in on this. Cause there's some moments where Charlie's kind of goofing around and trying to show off yeah. and you're like, ah, he, he doesn't understand what Keating's talking yeah. about, but uh, in the end, I think he does. He does. Yeah. And that's the other thing too, with the relationship of not
1: just the main two, but also all of the guys in this movie and to bring this all back in with Weir is that the whole big story is that Weir had them living At the same, at the Radisson Hotel, wherever they were filming at in like Delaware or whatever, like living there for three weeks together. Mm -hmm. All the kids, and Williams as well. It was like all of them like rehearsing every day for the film. And I love hearing Ethan Hawke talk about it nowadays. And he's just like, yeah, like I was young and I just thought, oh, every movie is going to be like this from now on. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, I didn't come across that until I worked really with Linklater years later. Yeah. like this was kind of the only time where he said that we're it's a good interview i think it's called the off camera it's on
0: youtube Yeah, but it's he with, said it was sam jones's podcast
1: yeah yeah, yeah. And, and hawk says like we're taught me that there's between good and great it's just one turn of the screw but that turn of the screw is going to be the most difficult turn of the screw you're gonna have and it's it's true it's like It's that one little detail, those few little details what's going to make that film or that piece of work or whatever turn from good and acceptable to great and masterful.
0: Well, and I I love, I sent you a clip that's uh, the whole cast at the Venice Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And one thing I just love about that clip is you get to see that cast with their, like, 90s haircuts, and it's glorious. Yes, (laughs) yes. Oh, gosh.
1: The long... (laughs) sean hunter from born meets world haircut all the middle parts it's coming back yeah. man it, yeah. They, yeah. They,
0: they, you could you could you could pluck josh charles from literally from that interview he's wearing like all denim with like a middle part you could like drop him in a high school today and he would fit in. put fine. him on tiktok yeah yeah he'd be great but yeah it's it's all the 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 cast together and i love it's done it's an interview it's it's by an australian news channel so they're like we want to hear about peter weir like you know he's yeah. like their proudest yeah, yeah, yeah. son and uh josh charles they, they all just start raving about him and josh charles says uh the way that the the characters in the film feel about keating feel about robin williams character is the way that we as actors feel about peter weir and we even called him oh captain my captain on set And it sounds like he just went out of his way to create, not only did he put together this amazing cast of these like talented kids, he went just out of his way to make this such a great experience for them as actors. He also shot it uh, chronologically, which is super rare. And I can't believe the studio signed off on it because it's usually expensive, but in that way, he was able to bring them all together. You know, when they first show up in the film, they're not, they haven't known each other that long. So maybe some of that awkwardness is there by the end of the movie, they've all been living together, shooting together, exactly how the movie goes. And supposedly, when Neil dies, he just, they wrap, because you know, nobody else was in that scene um, of the boy cast. So they shot that one night, rapped Robert Sean Leonard, shipped him off, didn't let him say goodbye to any of the boys. So the next day when they woke up, they have to film this scene, finding out that, that he's gone. He, he Robert was gone. They weren't going to see him again until like the premiere
1: like it's like that that's like borderline is that like cruel but also ingenious in a way if that mm-hmm. makes sense of just like I i think me, but i think because at that point because he had built up enough credit with everyone that's a move they're like that makes sense yeah. that makes sense for the movie if that's the that that's the um struggle we have to deal with is not saying goodbye to robert sean leonard before he could complete this film if that's what makes us a better film, then let's do it.
0: But you were you were talking about the dynamic that kind of comes over from Gallipoli. But I think, and I, and I mentioned this in episode one. I think the closest thing, I think this and Picnic at Hanging Rock is are the two closest films that you can point to and say we did both of these. I think yeah, of yeah. his entire filmography, those are the two that you could kind of put together because a lot of that stuff is even the dynamic between and Picnic at Hanging Rock isn't as concerned with characterizing the students as well as it does here but there is that mm. kind of dynamic with the two roommates in picnic and hanging rock where the, yeah, the one girl who goes missing is kind of the most popular girl in school and the other one is is very shy the and tru- not, yeah not, the troublemaker kind of, yeah yeah and is and is kind of obsessed with with the roommate um that's true but, but also stylistically he brings yeah a lot of his etherealness that he's we've talked about in literally all of his works that kind of dreamlike state it comes mm-hmm. over here and it's it's done wonderfully once again
1: and, and i think also a testament to that is the score yeah the absolutely we keep, we keep bringing up with with weir's movies and this is maurice maurice Jarre. uh i apologize if i butcher your french name um but he he worked i didn't realize this so he worked with david lane a lot mm. he did the score for lawrence of arabia and we had made this, we had talked about this with Gallipoli a little bit. Is that it feel like Gallipoli felt like we're making his David Lean movie.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. so
1: it makes sense that he would work cons- a good bit with Maurice Jarre.
0: With yeah, a lot of his did, films. I know he did Year of Living Dangerously, right?
1: He did Year of Living Dangerously, he did Witness, he did Mosquito Coast, Dead Poet Society, and I think that he did Fearless. So he
0: did a lot with him. Well, and I like that that we and and Jar does this, but I don't want to say it's just it's not weird because it, this this pops up in some of his other films as well. Like uh the last wave relies very heavily on like a, a didgeridoo score, but a lot of weirs scores have like one specific instrument that's that's kind of strange. You wouldn't notice you wouldn't normally think of it as like the standout instrument. And in You're Living Dangerously, they use kind of traditional uh instruments from that area. But here it's the it's a harp and yeah it is done so well and something i i never noticed before this rewatch and i was listening for the music cuz that's one of those things that that you do when when we're doing this peter Weir month is I'm, i like start to go like oh man i really like his scores uh through all of his films but the the it the movie goes back and forth between a harp score and a synth score and they never really come together until the oh captain my captain moment oh and it's like the culmination of the entire film It's like because sometimes they'll just be the harp sometimes it will yeah, just be right. the synth but then the the really like the great you know boom bring it home moment yeah. it, it it has them both together that's a really great catch and it makes that moment here's the here's the thing about this movie It it's been copied and almost parodied to the point where yeah, it can take away some of the sincerity of the film, especially when you talk about it with other people. You know, the the take that page and rip it out of your books has, has become such a like, you know, everyone had a, an English teacher try to do that at some point. And, <laughs> and to be quite honest, the Saturday Night Live parody was so well done that I can't watch yeah. the O-Captain My Captain scene without thinking of it. But yeah. every time yeah. I do come back to it, I'm still like, the sincerity is here. I, I still think this is just an incredibly done film.
1: And going, I want to dive into Robin Williams here because we haven't really, we haven't really discussed him that much regarding this film. I think it's very important to talk about for the movie and for Weir's career and for Robin's career. Williams at this point had done films before, had been acting for the whole decade. Got did stand up, got big on Mork and Mindy. That's a little bit before our our time, but I'm aware of it, and I watched like some that some of Mork and Mindy and like Happy Days and stuff with him on it growing up but we kind of became to know him from his movies in the late eighties into the nineties specifically. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed this, what I thought about this time when we were watching it is how, how we see Robin Williams for the rest of his career comes from this movie. Mm -hmm. Like he had done other stuff before, like good morning Vietnam is the him doing dramatic and, uh, and comedic, but it's more of a comedic movie. He's more comedic performance with dramatic moments occasionally in there, because it's a lot of him just doing his bits on the radio a lot yeah. of time. Oh, that's the stuff that sticks to mind a lot. With Good Morning Vietnam, you're not thinking about him going into the classroom and and teaching the students there about English or whatever. It's the radio stuff here, however. And I wonder if this is just if this is the script. We talked about this before. If this is the script. If this is weird or whatever but there is a tenderness in Robin Williams in this movie that we'd never seen before.
0: Yeah. I think he, he feels because in some of his other movies, he can feel larger than life when he brings that Robin Williams stage persona. Yeah. But Keating feels like a real person who every once in a while likes to do a little shtick, likes to do a Marlon Brando impersonation, but he's, he's a real person and he feels fully formed.
1: And, that leads me to my favorite moment in the entire movie. Can you guess what scene I'm going to talk about? Uh,
0: the with Todd, with, with Todd. the with the the poem. I think that's... I could the- tell you're going to bring the scene up when I said that I thought that Robert Sean Leonard gave the best performance. I could <laughs> I could see it in your eyes. You're like, no, <laughs> we're going to talk about the sweaty tooth man.
1: Well, well, I don't, I want to talk about everything. It's 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 the it's Ethan Hawke is great. But we're the way we're directs this mm-hmm. scene yeah. is amazing, because it becomes this dance between Williams and Hawk, where they're spinning and spinning, and he's getting him to say the poem. But what what with that scene, why I say I think it's it captures what I'm trying to say with Williams, and that tenderness. It's the moment when Williams lets go
0: mm-hmm. and
1: he backs away, and I honestly believe my favorite performance my favorite moment of 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 Williams' entire career is that moment right there when he takes a step back like a parent watching their kid ride a bike for the first time without their help Mm -hmm. it's this it's this his his expression is full of awe and pride and just watching todd find his true self and it's this it's just the way he like kind of crumbles down and it just kind of sits there and watches. I think is amazing.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic scene, and that's that's one of those that's one of those scenes when you when you watch it and you're like, yes, this is a very strong script. It's a very strong cast, but this is weird. Yeah, like this wouldn't have all come together without that vision. Like picture doing that scene in just a wide shot. Yeah,
1: it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's well, that, it doesn't it's that work because that that's the
0: moment that Todd breaks out of his shell, and and the yeah. reason that scene. The reason you go, okay, I understand that this is, this poem came out of Todd is because you are getting as disoriented as Todd is.
2: Uh, A yawk. No, not just a yawk, a barbaric Mm -hmm. yawk. Yawk. Come on. Louder. Yawk. Oh, that's a mouse. Come on. Louder. Yawk. Oh, good God, boy. Yell like There it is. You see? You have a barbarian in you after all. Now. You don't get away that easy. Picture of Uncle Walt up there. What does he remind you of? Don't think. Answer. A, a, a madman. What kind of madman? Well, think about it. Just answer again. A crazy madman. Oh, you can do better than that. Free up your mind. Use your imagination. Say the first thing that pops into your head, even if it's total gibberish. Go. Uh, on, go uh, on. A sweaty tooth madman. Good God, boy! There's a poet in you after all. There. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close them. Now, describe what you see. Uh, I, I close my eyes. Yes. Uh, and this image floats beside me. sweaty tooth madman. The sweaty tooth madman. With a stare that pounds my brain. Oh, that's excellent. Now give him action. Make him do something. His hands reach out and choke me. That's wonderful, wonderful. And all the time he's mumbling. What's he mumbling? Uh, mumbling truth. Yeah, yeah. Truth like, like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. Forget them, forget them. Stay with the blanket. Tell me about that blanket. You, 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 push it, stretch it. It'll never be enough. Kick at it, beat it. It'll never cover any of us. From the moment we enter crying to, to the moment we leave dying, it'll just cover your face as you wail and cry. And scream. Yeah. Don't you forget this.
1: Any scene in this movie with Williams, throw a dart at the wall and you'll hit, I think, someone's favorite scene. Yeah. It's the, the speech of, of, what verse will you be? Carpe. <laughs> yeah. That one. Yeah. It's, there's so many. And what I think is so unique too, or what's so great about this as well, is that Williams has a bigger impact as Keating because he's actually not in the movie that much.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like he, he he gets nominated for Best Leading Actor, but he's like, he's the third person, maybe. You might be able to argue some other people as well. Like I think we spend more time with Knox by Knox's self than with Keating by himself. Um, Keating's kind of this he's the catalyst for them to to try new things and to discover themselves so we don't always really see him alone outside of the characters except his friendship with the Latin teacher with it I think it's very which is great it's very like subtle and not not a lot in there
0: do you did you did you watch the deleted I, scene? Did, I
1: did I did I did they had that one you, scene together
0: do you think that scene I that's the one scene out of the deleted scenes I was like I think I really would have liked to have that one in. There's a, there's a scene when after, after Neil's death, it's a very quick scene where he's having tea with the Latin mm-hmm. teacher and the Latin teachers like, listen, it's not your fault. Yeah. And, and you can just see that Keating is like heartbroken.
1: Yeah. I think it's that it's that scene. And that's the scene with uh Neil and Todd reading lines together. Mm-hmm. Those are two scenes. I was like, I think you could have, this
0: might've been, good. I, I would have been fine with this movie being, eight minutes longer
1: yeah it's at a certain point you're like D- does it matter like <laughs> is eight minutes gonna i mean I, I eight minutes can hurt your film i'm not gonna say mm-hmm. it doesn't but i'm saying with this movie specifically were they just like oh yeah i cut this scene it's slowing it down or like what like what was the what was the reasoning behind it
0: but i mean and, and and the choice you can see the conscious choice being made that you don't see from neil's suicide you don't see keating again until the day he leaves it, it, it kind of really sticks with the boys for that. And, and, and I mean, it's, yeah, it's a tough, I think that the choice here was to emphasize the anguish that these boys are going through having lost their friend and now being like forced to turn on their favorite teacher. Yeah. You just signed your expulsion papers. Noanda, Cameron.
1: What a snitch. Uh, I want to, I want to bring this up now, and this might transition into some other films, but I want to talk about this the weird cause it's, I know I realized it more here and I started thinking about it as the overall work. Weir has an interesting fascination with death Mm -hmm. or the possibility of death, death, death or the possibility of death play a key, usually play a key role in the majority of his films Mm -hmm. from dead poet society to fearless I think Picnic at Hanging Rock specifically yeah. is the
0: big one. The, the mystery uh, of, of you know what
1: What happened to these people with these kids yeah. or these people. Uh I think You're Living to has that with a specific uh uh character. I think Last Wave has it as well. Um Witness uh, a death spur like spurs the entire plot.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And to an ex- and then Truman show as well. We'll talk about that later. But Truman, Truman's whole kind of fears. Spur from his father dying. Mm. So it's an interesting kind of how he portray or how his characters deal with death are is, is a is a a theme I've started to notice when watching all these films together. Yeah. So Dead Poets Society comes out in 89. Surprisingly, very big hit. <laughs> like you would be. I, I, it's it's it, this movie. Like it came out, it grossed two hundred and fifty, uh, two hundred and thirty million dollars worldwide. It's the fifth highest grossing film of the year. Williams said it was his fa- It was one of his favorite films, and Weir was his favorite director to ever work with. It may. Let's see. It was nominated for four Oscars: Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Leading Actor for Williams. Tom Schulman would win the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, making it the second time in four years that a weir film won best screenplay at the Oscars, the other one being witness. I'm
0: telling you, he he elevates he elevates what's on the page.
1: And usually, because it's usually writers, besides like I think Mosquito Coast we talk about, when he gets into America, a lot of the writers it feels like are like, he's not working with, I don't mean as, as a slight to the, the writers he worked with, but he's not working with like, I'm doing a movie with Aaron Sorkin, or I'm doing a movie with... um uh like one of the top screenwriters it's always some script that's been like around for a bit or is somewhat flawed he's able to kind of make something out of it and usually kind of younger writers who might be known for like comedy or whatever and he takes a dramatic script or whatever and 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 changes it up a little bit it's like witness like i said witness could have been a, a easily been just another 80s cop thriller mm-hmm. and it was based on an episode of i think we said was it uh the Gunsmoke? Bonanza, it was something like... Said. Bonanza. Yeah, yeah, So, like, it could have been a, just another, like, cash grab movie with Harrison Ford at that point. But he's able to elevate that script to something else. And he does that here. Yeah. Lastly, let's see, one thing I want to say. Yeah, Weir gave all the actors books on 1950s teen cultures to find out what the kids were watching, listening, or reading.
0: Such a, such a wonderful call, aesthetically. Like, it, it makes the film date perfectly. And and no one's ever like no one's in the movie like oh I'm really worried about those Soviets like you know <laughs> it doesn't go out of its way to, to be set in the in the 50s
1: so that and that brings up a good point that I want to bring up because Ebert didn't like this movie and Roger Ebert didn't like this movie that much and that's kind of a comment he makes is that it doesn't talk about the writers of the era the Beatnik generation the mm-hmm. the, the like those those type of people. And I wondered, I'm like, would the would that style of writing, would those kind of figures break into this world? I think at when this those point?
0: I think when those boys go home for the summer, they get really yeah. into the beat, the beat generation. I so but I don't yeah. think they had access to it at that school, and and Keating was teaching them the classics, and and maybe the classics lead them into some Ginsburg. But I don't think I don't think that school library was was stocking on the road like.
1: Yeah, and I also wondered because it's direct or written by Tom Schulman. It was based on his experiences at a at a boarding school in Nashville. And I tell my buddy, I was like, "Yeah, the South. I'm not sure if they're really invested in the Beatnik generation. I'm yeah. not sure if Ginsburg was was available to like Southern boarding schools. And so that makes me yeah, wonder. That's, like,
0: that's just an. Well, I think that's the the beauty of this this film because that's an entirely different movie where they're sneaking these books in. And the faculty is like you can't be studying these books i think that's what's really simplistic but also beautiful in this movie is that keating's doing everything according to the book and you can tell you know he's teaching robert frost and 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 thoreau and 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 he's he's teaching the the curriculum he's just teaching it in a way and he's teaching these things that ordinarily would just go right over these kids heads and but he's teaching it in a way that makes it connect and that shows that like that the, these poems that every single one of us have studied—if—if if it's given to you in the right way, it can hit. Yeah, and and so to to make it be like they're bringing in these banned books that are like hot right now, I think that completely changes the movie.
1: I think also it dates the movie in a way where it doesn't hold up as well as it yeah. goes forward. I think yeah. Ebert is maybe right in terms of looking at the movie. At that time, in the context of like, oh, they should be showing this era. But I think, in terms of like generational of this movie carrying on, I think if you start referencing more things, it becomes a little more difficult for it to to transition to these other generations.
0: Hot take, hot take from Roger. As we said, big fan. Yeah, big, big fan of Weir, been a champion of Weir.
1: Yeah, but he 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 was probably thinking for a bit like, what's going on? Because he didn't like Mosquito Coast he didn't like dead poets well i think he he knew what was wrong with mosquito coast he was saying that the script doesn't match with what we are in ford are doing um but yeah dead poets i think it, i kind of read it and i go it sounds like he's like siding with the other teachers in a weird way because he yeah. was just kind of like saying like well they should be talking about the beauty of poetry like they're just name dropping stuff and he brings up a point that is somewhat valid i believe when he says if if he was a good teacher the kids would be in love. The, the ending would show the kids are in love with the subject, not just the teacher himself.
0: I think it can be both.
1: I think it'd be both. I think I've had teachers that I thought were great as people and kind of taught me to think outside of what was being taught to me. I didn't have to love the subject that was being taught to me.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but so yeah, dead poets, I think kind of gives him a little bit of a, I don't know if this is if it gives him like a blank check type thing or whatever, but it, it's a, it's a big stepping stone for weir for his career. Yeah. Uh, last last thing I want to say before uh, or a few th- few last things I want to say before we move on to the next movie. Uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck apparently auditioned for the role or, or auditioned for the roles of the kids.
0: This not not does not getting this turn into Goodwill Hunting at some point.
1: I don't know, maybe. And then and then apparently Sam Rockwell was another one.
0: I for Nwanda, right. I think so. It would have been been interesting. I would would love that, but I still love this performance here.
1: Uh, So I told you it it had four Oscar nominations, only won one. At the BAFTAs, which is the British equivalent of the Oscars and sometimes more on point, (laughs) Dead Poets received seven nominations and won two. One for Best Original Score by Maurice Jarre and one for Best Film. Nice. Uh, It was turned into a play uh in the 2000 2010s do you know who played keating
0: i do not i did not know that was a thing
1: jason sudeikis
0: oh nice actually i yeah. do kind of remember that happening yeah though. it was around the same time as to kill a mockingbird uh,
1: i think a, a year or two prior but yeah it's yeah. around yeah yeah i remember. i because I, 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 I searched it and i saw like i searched like dead boats on google and an image comes up with jesus Degas, i'm like why is Jason jesus a it, it,
0: what if he just played it as ted lasso i mean that's essentially what De- ted lasso that, is yeah you know? i
1: think i think yeah i think there was some criticism that like he didn't land the dramatic stuff but i would i would been interested to see that that version and last thing i don't know how true this part is but i want to bring it up because i find it kind of funny but allegedly people talked about a sequel for the movie
0: yeah i had heard that focusing on yeah. todd on
1: todd yeah. basically becoming the Keating character
0: I don't know. Ethan Hawke has a pretty good track record when it comes to sequels, is all I'm saying.
2: (laughs) We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race, and the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, Romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, O oh me, O oh life, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? Answer that you are here, that life exists and identity. That the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. That the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse
1: be? Well, moving on to Weir's next film. So he moves on to Green Card, which is the movie he was going to make before dead poet society
0: but gerard Depardieu was just too darn popular just too
1: busy and I, and and so gerard Depardieu is a very problematic person i'm going to say that right now uh he's in the news a lot lately not a fan of him as a person nope. at all at nope. all honestly not that big of a fan of him as an actor either but that's just i I'll,
0: I'll go i'll go ahead and say this and this speaks to peter weir's craftsmanship in this film i don't really like andy mcdowell as a performer either but I really like this
1: movie. <laughs> you really do like this movie. I was actually i am actually kind of surprised how much you like this movie. I really, really it, enjoy this
0: movie, and I find them both really charming. In this, and yeah, I—I'm not a Gerard Depardieu person at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Green Card is about a uh, Bronte who is a, a horticulture horticulturalist. Yes. <laughs> the phrasing, I believe. Uh, she likes plants. She works with plants. And um, Gerard Depardieu, as what's what's his name?
1: Uh, It is, oh gosh, was he George? George. George.
0: Yeah. Um, Who is a Frenchman who is homeless, a homeless French waiter in New York who wants a green card. And Bronte is told that he is a composer. That is unclear (laughs) at the time. Uh, But she's told by a friend she needs to, she wants to become the live in. Greenskeeper, caretaker for this amazing New York apartment that has a beautiful yeah. solarium inside the apartment building. And they have mm-hmm. a a a gardener who lives in the apartment and there's an opening and she wants it, but she needs to be married. They they only want yeah. a married couple. So yeah. she's told by a mutual friend, hey, I know this guy, he needs a green card, you guys get married, he gets a green card, you get your apartment, you guys get divorced, you're good, you're set.
1: Yeah. Never so, see each other ever again. Yeah, basically. So there you go. <laughs>
0: Opening of the film, they go, they get married, they shake hands, they part their ways, and then uh, immigration starts poking around and wants to look a little bit deeper into the marriage, and they're forced to move in together together and pretend to be married for a couple of weeks in order to make sure they don't get arrested for defrauding the government.
1: I mean, it's a great rom-com premise. Honestly, yeah,
0: it, it's the proposal. It was literally remade. With <laughs> yeah. Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds.
1: <laughs> and for those that haven't seen green Cart, it's currently streaming on HBO max as recording as is dead poet society. Um, so go watch those there. Yeah. Green cart. It's a, it was when we, I watched the first time last year when we were prepping for the first possible Peter Weir episode. And yeah, it's surprising cuz it's not well received nowadays it feels like. But it is a solid rom-com with weird sensibilities
0: throughout it. Yeah, I think weird rare Weir takes a rom-com and pushes it. There's some moments that are just too beautiful for a rom-com. You're like this <laughs> you're like, "Oh, we are just kicked it into like weird level." There's one specific yeah. scene that I think is like transcendent is incredible and I've rewatched it several times. I've seen this movie twice now. I watched it last year for the first time. I rewatched it this past weekend, but there's a scene I like pull up every once in a while. And I'm just like, I just watch it. What scene is that? It is the uh, scene at the party when he is asked to play one of his compositions.
1: Oh, it's great.
0: Uh, spoilers. A little bit of spoilers.
1: It's fine. No, we'll that's fine. We'll throw
0: this out. We've already spoiled.
1: It's the, it's yeah. We Deadpool spoiled the big thing. Society. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah so, Bronte is told that this guy is a composer and that seems to be like the only thing she really latches onto. Cause she's kind of like a New York effete, and uh, is like, Oh, he's a composer. At least he's an artist. I can, you know, look past him being this kind of disgusting oafish Frenchman. Uh, but every time she brings up that he's a composer, he kind of shrugs it off and she starts to really doubt that he even is a composer. And so they go to uh, this fancy dinner with her friends, parents, her friend played by the f- fabulous BB Newer. She is amazing.
1: And I, I, texted you, <laughs> I texted you at one point, I was just like, "God, I wish she was in more films. Like I really wish she was in more films."
0: She is only in like two scenes in this movie and just catapults herself into the rom-com best friend hall of fame. Like, like she, like
1: she, she, she's the, Annie, she's Annie Potts X factor award. If we yeah. did that as a green card. Yeah.
0: And she's part of why this scene is so good. Cause they keep cutting back yeah. to her reactions. <laughs> it's <Yes>. hilarious. Um, <laughs> yeah. So they're at this fancy party. They've told everyone that George is a composer. And so they go to the parlor for, for coffee and uh, B.B. Noor's mother asked him to play one of his compositions. Yeah. And there's this moment, it's the the pacing is perfect. He goes and sits at the piano. It's quiet. Uh, we are holds on this like one like long shot of the whole room. And everyone's kind of like coughing and sifting in their chairs, waiting on him to start. Mm-hmm. And you know, this could go one of two ways. Either he's not a composer yeah. at all, or he's been being modest and he's fantastic. Yeah. And he kind of, we are like hits both of those in a way that is perfectly done. Like he opens with this, like he just starts banging on the keyboard and Andy McDowell is horrified and (laughs) B.B. Neuer thinks it's hilarious and everyone in the room is like freaked out and then he finishes and there's this line, he looks up and he says, well, it's not Mozart and B.B. Neuer's mother says, no, it's not. And then he launches into this gorgeous piece of composition and pairs it with this poem that he writes off the top of his head too. And it's in order to convince because they've come to this dinner to try and procure these plants for a charity that that Bronte works for. And he writes this song and puts this poem with it about how the, the children of the inner city have no plants and it brings, Bibi Neuer's mother is translating and it like brings her to tears as she's translating. And it's gorgeous. The music is amazing. The poetry is is amazing, and it's it's so well done. And I that's that's one of the There's a couple of scenes in this movie that really just like could be your typical rom com, and and weird just elevates it.
3: Would you translate for me, Madame?
2: What
3: I une fois j'ai entendu le bruit du vent dans les arbres. Once I heard the sound of the wind in the trees. I think that's it. Once I heard the sound of the laughter of children.
2: And I wept warm, salted tears for the lost trees.
3: I saw the tears in the trees. Je leur donnerai de l'espoir, il a dit.
2: Let the little children come unto the trees, and I will give them hope, he said.
3: Il n'y a plus d'arbres pour ces pauvres enfants perdus.
2: But there are no trees for the poor lost poor children.
3: Décadence est leur jouet.
2: Decay is their toy. Descadence est leur jeu. Despair is their game. Only chaos to climb,
0: and and I love. There's there's also a, a moment when her when Bronte's parents come to visit. Yeah, I think I think Roger Ebert picked out this scene especially in his mm-hmm. review, uh, which was very positive. And um, but yeah, there's a the scene when her Bronte's father kind of figures out that that she and George are living together. And you think it's gonna be that rom-com, like, you can't live with my daughter moment and, yeah, you... yeah, yeah.
1: Cause, and cause Andy McDowell, she's Bronte set that up saying, like, yeah. oh, he would hate you, like you guys are so different from
0: one another. And he doesn't, and it and it kind of it, it it gives it his character has such warmth and depth in just like the one scene that he's in. It's yeah, yeah. I I I, I and let it be stated, the score for this film as we're talking, Peter Weir scores. Hans Zimmer absolutely kills it. Yeah. With this like new world, uh, like, was, you know, what was the the 80s term for it? Like world culture music, you know? Yeah, 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 world world music kind of of, Neo neo African style. Yeah. um, But gorgeous.
1: But we talk about Maurice Jarre, it's like that transition of that musical style is still present in a weird film, but with a different composer. And I know it's like, cause, cause I I don't know if it's one of your favorite Zimmer scores.
0: It's up there. Number one, here's the thing too. I don't know what Zimmer's background is. He's completely moved away from this style, but his ability to compose within like a, like a Neo-African style, I don't, I don't know what his background was with that because I think Hans Zimmer's best work is the score for Lion King is fantastic.
1: The score that Zimmer does makes the movie feel epic Mm
0: -hmm.
1: like and rom-coms don't feel epic is the thing and somehow because i'm thinking of like kind of towards the end or whatever where the the music's really hitting a kind of a crescendo um at the end and i think it's just it's beautiful one thing i want to talk about in this movie again because i want to start talking about themes of weir a little bit we haven't we haven't delved in the outsider thing which we will i think on this one too but it's how he ends his movies, which I kind of I started I I started I noticed with this section of movies, because all three of them do it. And this might be too like detailed for some people, and I apologize, but this how it ends the movie always fascinates me. How you end your last scene. All three films cut to black. Hmm. And I wanted to bring up this discussion because I think there's the cut to black and the fade to black are kind of the two big, how you end a movie. And a lot of his like witness, I think is a fade to black mosquito coast is a fade to black, but we get it from dead poets, green card, fearless Truman show. I believe also does this. They all cut to black. And what I want to say with a cut to black versus a fade to black is that a fade to black. There is a feeling that the story is complete It's like closing a storybook or closing a novel. That story's over and we've moved on. A cut to black always feels like there's one more scene you need to fully, like, to get the answer you're wanting. It's the inception with the totem spinning. Um, It's at the end of Dead Poets where they're all standing on the desk and it cuts to black. It cuts to black from Ethan Hawke's face is what it is. Mm -hmm. But you want, like either them to say either either Ron Williams being told to get out of the classroom or they're being said, okay, let's look at getting your job back or whatever, or what mm-hmm. like, there's like one scene you need to get that final moment, that final answer or that final question. Yeah, or like, even are
0: all these kids going to get kicked out for this? That, you know? Yeah.
1: It's like, and, and, and so with a fade to black, it's an awkward kind of ending. That doesn't make sense for that thing you're trying to say, but a cut to cut to black makes it feel just it's abrupt but in a good way it lets you kind of put your own ending to the movie
0: yeah and i love that i love the the ending to this one too because it's it does the same does a similar thing another another person making this movie might attack another scene on the end for like they lived happily ever after but this one's like and that's not it's not really what this is about
1: and it's kind of of leaves you with just an open question of like what's going to happen between
0: these two yeah, because he as far as i know he's still being deported at the end yeah of this.
1: but i want to talk about that because there's a cut to black and a fade to black and i know some people think it's kind of arbitrary of like how you end a movie but that's a very specific thing you should think about or there's a fade to white you know mm-hmm. that's the very ambiguous ending that's why at the end of titanic everyone thinks she died or is she dreaming because it fades to white when she's at the end of the end of the movie where she's in the ship with all the people that were on the boat like The fade to white makes you like wonder kind of the entire idea of the movie as a whole when a cut to black it's just that specific thing of like that that one unanswerable question and the fade to black is this complete story yeah sorry i I just wanted i I was thinking about that when i watched all three because all three of them cut to black yeah and i love i
0: love the endings for all three of these
1: yeah they are they're great because we haven't really talked about his endings i feel before this episode and i wonder if from he if like dead poet society is where he really figures out the ending does that make sense because like all the other ones are like fade to black here's a complete story but from dead poets on it's it's different it's it's this kind of leaves you like leaves you wanting more is what i'm saying yeah what else do you want to say about the green about green card
0: you know, I think as, as we're continuing to draw parallels with his other stuff. Yeah. He wrote, he didn't write many of his films, but I think right. there's oh, something yeah. there that he wrote the plumber and <laughs> and he wrote this, which are both yeah. movies about two people being stuck in an apartment, driving each other insane. This yeah, one right? is a lot more pleasant than the plumber, but yeah, it's there, but, but it's, uh, it's one of I, the
1: only, only films he wrote. It's well, I think it might be the only film he wrote by himself mm-hmm. or one of the only ones.
0: And I got to say with this one, especially, he shoots that apartment gorgeously. Like, he you, does. You, there's some amazing framings in that apartment yeah. that make it feel so much larger than it than it is.
1: He took some tips from Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner of like, you know what? Gotta put it in New York. That's a rom-com. Gotta and give him a crazy a apartment great, that no one great, in the world ap- could ever yeah, have. The, a, great, a great apartment. Um, yeah, it's, I, think, I think Green Card is the only film he ever solely directed, produced, and wrote.
0: Which is so interesting because it feels kind of outside of the rest of his portfolio. It
1: does, but it still do- deals with like the outsider, the visitor, mm-hmm. because, because George is from a different country, he's from France. So it's like they're all still, still there, but it's just because of the genre that it is, the rom-com, it feels so out of the weir
2: filmography. As a matter of curiosity, how did you two meet? I'm sure it was very romantic.
3: We... Well, uh, you go ahead. No, you, please. We please, just... You. We sort of crashed mm. into each other. Boom! Like that. Goodness. Yes, I was uh, carrying a lot of parcels. Parcels? Yes, parcels. And, 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 and I picked and Anton, them up and... Don't
2: forget about Anton. Ah,
3: Anton, yes. He was Anton, with
2: George, and I yeah. knew him. Yes, he also
3: helped pick up the parcels.
2: Yes, but the point is, darling, is that he introduced us. Oh, that's true. He did. Mm. He did, yes. <laughs> Anton. <laughs> and? Uh, well... So,
3: um, Oh, it was raining.
2: Oh, yes, and, uh, we got soaked. <laughs> I
3: took one of her parcels when I picked up mine.
2: Oh, you had parcels too. Oh. Oh, everyone
3: had parcels. So many parcels.
1: Okay, so Thomas, after he finishes Green Card, yeah. he makes a film called Fearless. Yes. Go ahead and tell us what Fearless is about, Thomas.
0: Fearless is um, based on a novel. The screenwriter actually adapted it was adapting the screenplay at the same time that his novel is getting published. So the movie came out like the same year as the novel. Uh, but it's about a man who has survived a plane crash and is dealing with PTSD in a way that he feels almost invincible. He he feel he feels like he confronted death and now nothing else really matters. Nothing else can really shake him. Um, and he's he is fearless. Uh, and he is eventually it it starts to really affect his his personal life he he's doesn't feel like the same person when he's around his wife by the way Matt his name is Max he's played by Jeff Bridges his wife is played by uh, Isabella Rossellini Um, and but he is introduced by his therapist played by John Tutoro to Carla who was another survivor of the plane crash played by Rosie Perez She was nominated for an Academy award for her performance in this film where she is, she also has PTSD, but like in the exact opposite end of the spectrum, she lost her baby son in the crash and just does not see the point of living anymore. Whereas Max is like, life is wonderful. I, I survived. I'm going to live life to the fullest. Now, you know, none of the things I cared about before really mattered and she she is literally can't get out of bed and is like starving herself they're talking about taking her to the hospital and together they form this bond that kind of helps at least her break out of 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 you know what she's feeling and break out of her depression um and but then also he's he's on this journey of like can he even be saved from you know how far gone he is
1: yeah where is 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 reaching for something big in this movie?
0: Yeah, I, I think I told you because you had not seen this yeah. before. This was I had not seen this
1: before. Correct. This was first I, I said this
0: on the first episode, but I was shown this um, in a film class in undergrad, and and this was the movie that made me go like, "Oh, Peter Weir has has something to say," and made me yeah. revisit a lot of the stuff that I had seen before, and kind of like yeah. not even connected the dots that he had done all of them. Um, and I, I think I told you this week it, it's might be his most flawed film at least of his like big budget American stuff. Yeah. But I think it is also the closest he ever got to something like truly brilliant. Yeah.
1: Something transcendent in a way.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Cause I'll say this as like some parts of the movie, cause I wondered like this, cause it's like over two hours. I'm not, I don't like complaining about length, but I, at some point I was like, this is a little, little long right now, but cause I don't want to spoil this one a little bit, but when it gets to the ending or the last, like 15 minutes of the movie, everything that i was thinking about like like the slowness or whatever the ending makes up for like everything to me because mm. the way he directs the ending is pretty uh fantastic
0: yeah it's incredible and,
1: and it's, it's a great cast i think rosie perez i said i think you said that it's you think it's rosie perez's best performance mm. um and she's i think she's great in it um the scenes they have, the scenes that her and Bridges have together, are some of the best scenes in the movie. Also, too, and this is more, I've noticed it with when watching this film and I watched another movie with Bridges recently. Is Bridges underrated as an actor?
0: One hundred percent. You're talking, you're talking to somebody who <laughs> loves the Last Picture Show, obsessed with the Last Picture Show, and this film as well. I I, I saw uh, yesterday doing a little bit of googling that he 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 says this is one of his favorite movies that he's done
1: i could see that i mean it's but bridges it's it's one of his best performances i feel too and it's not, i'm honestly a little shocked
0: it didn't get
1: more love
0: huge flop huge it lost like 15 million dollars i mean not not you know in the grand scheme of things but i think it was yeah. like 20 million to make and it made six
1: yeah but i mean like in terms of the like the oscar like the oscar like yeah. pool or whatever i'm a little surprised it did not do as well same as some of his other ones
0: well, and even even for like i mean for the the production value of it the opening scene is amazing it, it opens with and this is this is pure weir you know this is that like this is his wheelhouse the like living in a dream it opens on a foggy cornfield and you find and and bridges moves into camera and then the camera kind of opens up to let you see that he is he's in a business suit, he's carrying a baby, and he's leading a group of people through a cornfield. And you're just like, what the hell is going on right now? And they emerge from the cornfield and the camera stays on him and just slowly begins to open up more and more. So you can see that there's this gigantic plane crash. and And the sound design too, because it's like, you, you don't even get the soundscape of this plane crash and slowly revealed to you as someone comes up to, to bridges and starts asking him like, are you okay? And then you realize that it is just pure chaos, but he gives it this like silence when they're moving through the cornfield that it's, 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 it's very serene and dreamlike until it's like, you're like, Oh, this is insane. And it, I, I forget, I saw like 4 million. I think they spent just on on making that plane crash probably it's yeah like two weeks on that. But uh, it's it's wild. Yeah, the plane crash stuff I
1: think like I said, is amazing of what they do, and it's 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 up there with like some of the better plane crash sequences in movies. Like the what what they do, and and weirdly, one of the more this sounds crazy says one of the more like touching like scenes. Like there's one part when like because two people at one point are like on opposite rows of the plane crash and they're or a the plane and they're holding hands. And when the plane splits, you see the hands split. And we're like lingers on the hands that are grasping for the other hand. Mm-hmm. It's just a very like just like it's heartbreaking moment is the thing. Yeah,
0: and it's it's very dreamlike. Again, but it not is, in a is. way it's not trying to make you go like, oh, this is a nightmare. But in 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 the same way, it does feel sensitive. Like it's not, you know, it's not. A disaster film you know it, it doesn't it, at no point feels like you're watching independence day or you know something for the carnage and um yeah the 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 way they reveal throughout the film it's is very well done i think but they because bridges is insisting that it wasn't that bad yeah you know i lived through it it wasn't that bad his lawyer played by tom holtz Love, love a love a Tom Holtz appearance, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, keeps telling him like you need to play up your trauma so we can get a better settlement. And and Bridget's like, eh, it wasn't that bad. But yeah, yeah. you keep getting these flashbacks that throughout the film you you get more and more information yeah. about his memory and that reveal that more and more that it was very traumatic. And um, it's ultimately kind of the the sequence when you really get the full picture of it is set to it's not a, not a score. It's set to a, a, a piece of composition um, by a composer named Gorecki. It's called The Symphony of Sorrowful Sounds. It's an incredible uh, composition, but it works so well, and you don't think it would.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's uh, going off of the, how it reveals information, because you're, you're really left wondering kind of who Jeff Bridges is, who Max mm-hmm. is. Because everyone keeps saying, "Oh, like you calmed me on the on the plane," and he's just like, "I'm go, I'm okay. No, it was no big deal. Like I don't remember that at all." Because that w- it starts off oddly when like when he's the plane crash happens and he's kind of he has the baby, but he's also like has the kid in his own- in his hand, and when the- he has to let go of the kid, it's like, "No, I want to go with you." He goes, "No, no, no, I have to go find the mother for the baby," and that kid becomes almost obsessed mm. with Max in a way. Cause he comes back into the play a little bit later when they go and visit him and like, thank him for his, what he did to save him. And it's just, and it's like, there's a lot of religious parallels. Yeah. In this movie.
0: Yeah. He's got this, he's got this Messiah complex now, whereas Rosie Perez is like dealing with her own crisis of faith because she's devoutly Catholic. Um, yeah, there's this, there's this great line of dialogue when, um, when the first after the first time they've met they've kind of gone on a walk and and when when max drops carla back off he says would you like to go out for a a ride with me one day and she's like Mm. i can't even get in a car right now max says you'll be safe with me i wasn't hurt in the plane crash nothing can hurt me and she's like oh so you're telling me because they just had this long talk about faith in the church carla's like oh you're telling me there's no jesus but there's you and he's like yeah
1: (laughs) Well, cause he had, I think that one like little kind of detail is when Bridges is in the hotel at the beginning, he goes to the hotel talking about sound. As I noticed this time of when he's like walking down this dark hotel, like uh uh, uh, hallway, it almost sounds like he's in a plane weirdly. Mm. It's very subtle and it's not like, it's not like overbearing. It just feels like something sounds a little off when he's walking through the hallway, but he looks in the mirror and he has like a cut a long cut on his uh, like uh, across his stomach or on, like, across his ribs or whatever. And it was basically, it was like, it was the same cut that like Jesus has on the cross is what oh, it is. From the
0: spear. Yeah. The spear.
1: Yeah. Cause that's what, that's the only thing he has on his body after a, a plane crash. Mm. And so that's the whole like Jesus Messiah type thing coming into it. um Yeah. But I, again, I want to circle back with Bridges because I, I say underrated. It's like I watched him and, uh thunderbolt and lightfoot that mm-hmm. he did with Clint Eastwood and i just think bridges i think sometimes because he's so well known for like playing the dude in the big lebowski um is that we forget all these other just electric and complex and fantastic performances that he's done yeah. throughout the years well,
0: i think um, that i think the dude is a great comparison piece like to show a how bit, easily no. these these two characters that are like, hey, nothing really matters. I'm just going to go with the flow and do my own thing. And how different Max and the dude are. And not not very far apart. I mean, how many years apart was that? Like two or three years? Five years, year, five five years, years apart. apart. Yeah.
1: yeah. But he's but he's like, at one point, I think he's wearing like a... He's wearing like a robe a lot of the times in the movie too. Like a long kind of jacket. It looks like a robe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost yeah, yeah. like the dude. Yeah, kind of
0: like a trench coat.
1: Yeah. And no i i th- i think he's fantastic in it i think it's just it's just a very yeah you this one he they the, the the script doesn't like I said it, it makes you really work if that makes sense of, yeah something of like something that's, going on
0: i've I've watched it a few times now and i think it's almost frustrating how inconsistent max's character is but yeah that puts you in that that's what everyone else you know that's what his wife feels, feels like. like dealing yeah, with him yeah. Uh, that's what his therapist feels like, you know, no one can pin exactly what's going on with Max because yeah. he was this person who was like, apparently very nervous, didn't like flying beforehand. And now he comes back and he's like, I survived. Nothing matters. My my, my marriage doesn't matter. There's that moment where, where he's like says to it's so weaponized too. He says to Isabel Rose, he's like, I'm not afraid to end our marriage. And he just says it so coldly and, and, it's a great moment too, cause she says it back. She's like, I'm not afraid either. And when he leaves the room, she like almost collapses against the wall. Like you can tell how much it takes out of her to deal with him.
2: Me give somebody. me this, give me this. This
3: is garbage. What this are you doing? Garbage. Go back to the table and finish.
2: Max, I want you to calm down.
3: I'm perfectly calm. Listen to me, I'm throwing this out. When you die, you don't get another life. Max, I
2: don't know what you're it's talking not, do you understand it's about. Me? It's not real dying. It's only mm-hmm. pretend. I know what dead bodies look like. Why don't you just shut up? Don't Shut no, up. do
3: Max, give him a break. He's a little boy. Oh, yeah, and if it was up to you, he'd stay that way. Dad, I don't, know I what don't that means, about this game. Want him to be cruel it means him. I don't want him to grow up to be a frightened child in a man's body.
2: He's just fine, Max. It's you who's in trouble. Now give the game back, or we'll keep on going but right out of our life. Our son is innocent, Max you want to crash our marriage okay but don't hurt our son
3: I'm not scared to end our marriage
2: neither am I
3: yeah keep on going good
0: so what what makes this movie a little flawed to you it's tough it's a it's a tough watch and, and I'm not saying yeah. that in a way that I'm like you know, people don't get it. Like, you know, like, Oh, I enjoy watching this. Um, it's yeah, it's it's not. I love I love the film. And I, I every time I come back to it, I, I discover something new, but it's not something I want to come back to, you know, every year, I've probably seen it four or five times, maybe five times. And I, I do discover something new, a lot of it to do with the performances, with Weir's style with the visuals of it. Like you said, I never noticed that sound design, with the airplane, but I think it is incredible masterfully done. And I think it launches Weir into a I think this is the start of a of a new era for him that that goes from this to Truman show to Master and Commander. Yeah. That is just even more I don't want to say he's like stylistically overdoing it. It's it's not like, you know, it's not like something you watch and you go like, whoa, Peter Weir, slow down. Yeah. But um but it is this like even this this stylistic control that is fascinating
1: yeah and it is it's he get he gets a little bit of a uh larger canvas to work with i guess you could say weirdly this film for the most part didn't feel as epic at first in the movie like, mm-hmm. the opening yes but as it goes on it's very like just small scenes a lot of the time just like two people or whatever and then it opens back up
0: by the end of it well you know a lot of screenwriters we'll tell you if you can make if you can write a great first scene and a great last scene That you're, you're <laughs> on the right track and i think this movie <laughs> like that that is and and you know i think since a lot of people haven't seen this film we don't want to spoil the end too much yeah. but yeah this is one of those movies and and the the cut to black absolutely helps with this but like this is one of those movies that that the last scene ends and you, you're impacted like whether or not you enjoyed the rest of the ride the rest of the journey of this movie that last scene is going to hit you i guarantee it
1: yeah it's it it does and that's what did for me that's why i was just like i'm not fully i mean i I wasn't i was bought into it but i wasn't loving it as much as i thought i would as i was going through it but the ending convinced me and made everything kind of make sense Mm -hmm. by the end um but no i think it's it's i i do because i think a lot of people have said to me like it's his most one of his more underrated movies. That's usually every time anyone describes this movie to me, that's how I describe it.
0: Yeah, but it's one of those things. I Like, I, and, and and what I told you is what I tell a lot of people. Like, it's very flawed. Like, it's not one of those movies that I want to build up expectations too much. I don't want to say it's brilliant. I don't want to say it's his best work, but it is something that really stands out to me, especially someone who's really interested in his his voice and his style. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's one of his most interesting pieces for sure
1: i wondered i wondered what this would be like if this came out like today like there's something about that like there's a few of weir's films as we've seen before they've uh mosquito coast getting a tv remake soon um picking a hanging rock guy tv remake uh what else was there that got or or there was uh gallipoli guy tv remake i believe as well and there's a lot of films that he's made where i wondered could that transition to the modern audience like could you i mean dead poet society i could easily see as a tv show if you wanted to make it
0: mm-hmm. if yeah.
1: you really wanted to do something like that and fearless i don't know if it could be a tv show but you've kind of seen these tv shows of like the uh like plane crash happens or people disappear and reappear there's something that's kind of like there in the dna of it like the leftovers that? I want to I want to know how much Damian Lindelof watched of all of Peter Weir stuff because I actually I'm, I'm I forgot, discovering
0: more and more as, as we do this I did, series. I, like, did, wow. I did
1: I did I forgot I did when I watched Fearless I did I was like this has a vibe of the leftovers in a weird way too. <laughs> it's
0: yeah and it has it's the way it approaches grief is yeah. and faith. Yeah. Is yeah very leftovers. It's like there's a beauty in in grief and in faith and it can also be heartbreaking and it's not reveling in it. No. but it is appreciating how human it is
3: I was going to buy him a lot of presents well let's do it let's buy him what did he like hmm? how about a sword my son used to love swords he still does but he's too old to admit it what would your son like does he play with Legos no he's too young for that Bristle blocks. Does he have those? They're great. Little babies can use them, and older kids you like to like them for buy years. A present for Bubble. Bubble, Now, is that really his name? It's Leonardo. I, I called him Bubble. I can't buy presents for him. That's sick. Why? Because he's dead. Of course, Bubble is Nothing dead. Is. You-, you wouldn't do this to me. What? You're going to buy presents for your dead father? My father. I never bought him anything i'm sorry i didn't mean it i mean i just don't think that it's a good idea i made him something in school carved his name in wood you know made a little those little uh, name plates that you put on your desk i was 13 when he died and never had a chance to buy him a real present let's do it let's buy presents for the dead
1: it might be like in the middle of my ranking of Peter Weir by the end of this. But with Peter Weir, as we've said, is that like, just because in the middle doesn't mean it's not a great film. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of these, I think, could be higher up if it was someone else ranking it. It's all perspective.
0: You know, something else that we we talked about in in his first, in the first episode that really comes into play here is his his use of um, slow motion yeah he play he plays with slow motion a lot in this one and in and scenes where and, and and he talked about with picnic and hanging rock that he liked to play with slow motion when you don't even realize it and he does it here in a couple of scenes where he'll like slow it down in the middle of the scene and you don't really necessarily notice that it is
1: you're right that's true because i think even some of the opening stuff is in slow-mo right am mm-hmm. i am i wrong with that yeah, yeah. no absolutely the opening scene uh and i do love the kind of little the the little uh it sets you up that you're gonna have to work in this movie is the beginning bridges has the baby. He has the baby. He's coming out. And then you see Rosie Perez come mm-hmm. out of the airplane, yelling, my baby, my baby's in there. And you're thinking, Oh, bridges has the baby. We're all good. And then it's revealed. It was someone else's baby. And you're like, wait, who was that other woman? And so mm-hmm. you're left for a lot of the movie wondering who that other person was like that's that's how I felt because I'm mm-hmm. expecting, uh, oh, she's looking for a baby, she's over there, and he walks over and it's Rosie Perez and it's just a different person completely. And you're like, wait, what just happened? What is this movie kind of going for? Mm-hmm. In a good way, but like I just was like, this is an interesting kind of choice here because it sets you up that like, not everything's going to be as it seems in this film.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anything else you want to talk about? on Fearless.
0: No, I, I, if if you've been following along with us on this journey and you haven't seen this one yet, definitely check it out. I think especially if if you, like I said, it was the film that made me appreciate Weir's voice. And if you have an appreciation for his voice and you come into this film, I think you think it's going to be a very interesting experience for you.
1: Yeah, it's the harder film to get. It's not streaming anywhere except you can rent it on Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, YouTube.
0: It's also just hard when you Google it, The Jet lee is Fearless just oh, keeps yeah. popping up. It's- <laughs> it does.
1: It does. Fearless 1993, guys. So go check it out. So Thomas, in this section, these three movies, what 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 have we learned what have we learned in this section? Like what did you learn or what did you kind of gather?
0: I think this is where we're really demonstrates he can work in any scale. Yeah. These are three movies that are very different in scale in all three of them. And, and once again, uh, we keep talking about these things, the outsider. yeah, The theme of of feeling out of place permeates all of this, obviously coming of age movie. You're a teenage boy. You feel like you're out of place. 100%. Um, but, but with Bronte and George and green card, it, it really shows that both of them feel kind of ostracized. Bronte is this person living in New York who is all about plants and gardening yeah. and has this one little oasis in her apartment building. But other than that, you know, is, is kind of stuck in this, this urban uh, you know, surrounded by buildings and, and George, who like, doesn't really know what he wants or he just knows he wants to be in America, but doesn't even really fit in there. Yeah. And then of course, you know, Carla and Max, mm-hmm. which is, is, I think, you know, going back to kind of appreciating what we we're going for this, the way that he, these two characters are brought together and they're both going through the same thing, but in such different ways. And they both feel as, as Max keeps putting it invisible. He keeps saying we're invisible. We're ghosts. We died in that plane crash and no one can see us anymore. Absolutely drives home this, this like being an outsider, feeling like you don't belong, just it's all there. And, and I just, I, I love that that we're reading this all as one big text <laughs> just makes it even more clear.
1: Yeah. And it's, and it's on very different canvases, different sides of films, different genres. Again, is that you look at coming of age, then you look at rom-com and then you look at like, I mean, not really disaster, but it's, it's like kind of a disaster film, but not, but also this kind of like psychological type thing. Like it's a, it's a movie about grief, just a straight drama. You talk about grief, like even dead Poets society has a little bit of that, mm-hmm. of like how to deal with grief, at least the latter half of the movie. Um, one thing I want to bring up, I didn't want to bring it up at, it's not as big of a theme as the outsider but I noticed it in Dead poets because it's a it's a repeat scene a little bit from witness is the use of music and I don't mean score I mean like pop music in Dead Poets Society you have two kids meeks and I think Pitts are trying to fix the radio to get music right mm-hmm something that Harrison Ford doesn't witness when he's trying to fix the car to get music. Yeah. Um, you have George constantly humming music throughout green card. Um, and you're living dangerously. One of the big pivotal scenes of the relationship between Gibson and Sigourney Weaver is at a party and kind of scored by pop music. Like when they kind mm-hmm. of have their first big fight. And I don't know what that means, if that's just a thing he likes doing, but I noticed it because in Witness, is a very touching moment from Ford, in a way, when he finds the music and it's kind of like transported back to like a, a simpler time for mm-hmm.
0: him. He's like singing to her a little bit. It feels very yeah, vulnerable for, yeah, for that. Exactly.
1: Character. And, he, and he starts dancing with her. But then in this one, again, and all of it's kind of the similar era of music, by the way, um, is when the kids are trying to find it in Dead Poetside, where it's the sense of freedom. Mm -hmm. in a way and it's a sense of the outside world they're trying to grasp in the same way that Ford is and witness so just just a small tidbit that i was like that's interesting this is the stuff you
0: pick up on this is what this this is what the journey is about (laughs) this is what it's all for
1: um but yeah that's what i kind of picked up on this but yeah i this is a this is a fun episode i never seen fearless i was excited to finally see it um and i think next episode is going to be interesting this might next episode might be the one I've been waiting for for a while, because you know how I feel about Truman Show.
0: I, I do. I, I, I also love Truman Show. And here's something I'm going to say. I can't even tell you how many times I've seen Master and Commander, mm-hmm. but I have not revisited Master and Commander since gaining my like true appreciation for Weir. So very, I'm, I'm actually very excited for that.
1: Well, I'll just say this nail. I've actually never seen Master and Commander, <laughs> so
0: wow. That's one of those. I think I, I think I wore I think I wore out the VHS tape. I don't know yeah. why. I mean, I do know why. I was I was obsessed with like, you know. I was obsessed with pirates and this, it's not a pirate movie, but it's a naval battle. It came, movie. Out, the same,
1: it came out the same year as pirates of Caribbean, I believe, or like that right was a,
0: I was living my best life that year
1: <laughs> when I was 12 years old, but that was one of those
0: movies. <laughs> I took it everywhere. I would take it over to friends houses and I would put it on and they'd be like, why are you making me watch this? And I'd be like, it's amazing. It's,
1: it's one of those ones that like, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I haven't seen. Cause everyone's like, you haven't seen master and commander. I'm like, no, I'm going to get to it. Don't worry.
0: And I got to say, I'm very excited to come back to it in a post WandaVision world because I love Paul Bettany. And I just feel, <laughs> I, don't know, I, I I just had, I had a, I know this is completely off topic. I had such a blast watching Paul Bettany just have a, have a good time in WandaVision for, for six, eight weeks, however, eight weeks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We'll but, talk about him. We'll talk about him more with MasterCombie. But yeah, I'm excited for it. Uh, this has been a fun week. So guys, that's it. If you haven't already, guys, make sure you write us a review on Sin Nation Podcast, our podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, we'd like to hear what you guys have to say. Uh, we actually have a new review that came in this past week. I'm going to read it to you guys. They said on that podcast, this podcast feels a bit more like sitting in a film class that you opted in for because you wanted to learn more about films, film style, genres, directors, actors, uh, informative, cool, and easy to digest. I love the little random tidbits in them, and you definitely do learn, so it's educational. I personally don't plan on sitting there and doing all the research on older films and what have you. So listening to this podcast is a great way to really get your film fix. It's not just focused on older films, but a great variety. Well done. Five stars.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'll put that. You know, if I ever apply for to be a, a film professor, I'm, I'll put that on my application. Yeah, there you go. That's my reference.
1: Uh, but yeah, make sure you give us a review if you guys can. They're very helpful. And make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. Thomas, as always, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you for coming on this this Peter Weir journey. Oh, oh. I, I was—I meant to mention this at the top of the episode, but <laughs> had a lot of people reach out to us and be like, "Wow, I love Peter Weir movies, and I never really like realized other people out there were talking about Peter Weir movies." So we got to put a name together. I decided we're—we're we're weirdos. That's uh, <laughs> we are turning. We're, if you're not already a weirdo, this month is going to turn you into a weirdo.
1: We <laughs> I get a T-shirt with that? All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.